there, you are listening to IWG Radio, the place to be for all of your wellness needs. We just want to take a moment to thank you so much for listening and just let you know that any of the information that is provided is strictly for an educational resource and is not intended to diagnose or treat any conditions. The lifestyle interventions discussed should not be used as a substitute for any type of conventional medical therapy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Integrative Wellness Radio. I am here with Dr. Nick. Hello, hello. And we are going to be talking about how blood sugar affects the brain. Um, As we move into February, we are kicking off all about the brain this month. So we have other podcasts to come that are really focusing on the the brain and a lot of our cognitive function. Uh, we really feel passionate towards this because unfortunately there has been such a rise in depression, anxiety, and also everything from dementia to Alzheimer's. And I think that it is something that is becoming very scary for people because they're seeing it in their family and they're wondering, are they next? And I know that part of my personal journey I had always had symptoms of hypoglycemia, and not that I knew it. Uh, I knew it, obviously, as I became more educated and I got into this world of integrative and functional medicine. And when I was dealing with, you know, just finding my memory wasn't as good and I wasn't able to concentrate as well and kind of beat myself up that I wasn't able to excel as fast as my peers in school, I found myself thinking there was something wrong with me and not necessarily realizing that there were other pieces to the puzzle. Um, One of them was actually mercury toxicity, which I'll touch upon shortly, but that had a lot to do with my massive fish consumption. Um, Didn't know that all sushi was not created equal. Um, But more importantly, it actually had a lot to do with the major instability in my blood sugar. And for me, I was more in this hypoglycemic state, and I'm going to go through the symptoms of that, but it really doesn't matter. It could be that you are hypoglycemic, hyper, meaning too much blood sugar or too much sugar in the blood, um, diabetic, either type 1 or type 2, meaning the autoimmune version or the acquired version, or you are developing something called insulin resistance. So again, we're going to expand upon what those mean. But the biggest key is for you to take away, do you have a blood sugar problem? Do you have cognitive effects because of the blood sugar problem? What can you do about it? And how can you start to see improvement? Got anything for us? I would just like (laughs) to add, let's talk about type 3 as well. Yes. Well, what they're actually talking about in the research now, and Dr. Perlmutter was one of the uh, physicians who wrote a paper about it most recently, is they're actually calling uh, Alzheimer's and dementia potentially being type 3 diabetes. Yep. All the research is saying type 3 diabetes and dementia are 100% correlated, which yeah. makes 100% sense. I mean, we'll take a step back, but give an overview. Really, type 3 diabetes is lifestyle um, brought on, you know, blood sugar problems. That's too much too much sugar, and when we have that increase, that hyperglycemia, it actually has the opposite effect on the brain. So it's like increased sugar, decreased brain size, decreased mm-hmm. brain size, increased inflammation with that 
a laundry list of um, things that actually mm -hmm. start functioning improperly. But with that, you have all the signs and symptoms of dementia. So mm -hmm. long story short is when your lifestyle brings on even beyond type 2, type 3 diabetes, uh, you're going to have dementia. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> first and foremost, the brain does run on glucose. And something we actually talked about in our last podcast is that too much of anything is not a good thing. So when your brain runs on glucose, it's a very specific type of glucose, which I want to talk about the American diet and the sugar that's hidden in a lot of our foods. But if you have this overabundance of glucose that cannot be used properly, which comes back to insulin, then that's where your problem lies. And like Dr. Nick said, you're going to have this neurodegeneration. So with that being said is, yes, glucose is important, but it can become a problem in excess if other pathways are not working properly. But before we go into that, I want to kind of establish a foundation here because first of all is you might be listening to this and say, I can relate to feeling really foggy and having some cognitive issues and having memory loss, but I don't eat sugar. I don't eat a lot of sugar. I never have. So how could I have type 3 diabetes? And part of that is it comes back to the pancreas. And your pancreas can dysfunction not necessarily because of too much sugar, but because of other problems in your gastrointestinal system, which, again, we're going we're gonna to touch on. But when You it, love making things complicated. Well, no, it's important. <laughs> it's no, very yeah. important. <laughs> Um, but when we do want to talk about the change over time is when we go back to our genetics and we go back to the foundation of our bodies, our bodies and our genetic genetics haven't changed too much over you know the past few hundred years. And we went from this hunter gatherer type of lifestyle that, you know, we pretty much, worked with the seasons, we ate what was available, and we ate a lot more plants, and we ate the animal protein when it was available. And we went from that to then this American diet, and don't get me wrong, it's other places in the world, but we have so much hidden sugar in everything that we consume. And I know for me, I remember thinking back when I got into school and we were talking a lot about nutrition and I remember thinking, well, you know, I didn't, I'm not a sugar person. I don't eat pastries. I don't have a sweet tooth. I couldn't relate to any of that. And I remember sitting back one day and thinking like, oh my gosh, my sugar consumption is through what I drink. And it's not, it wasn't soda. It wasn't even milk. It was the uh, Starbucks oh, lattes. Yeah, yeah. You know, a mocha latte was like a dream to me. <laughs> it was like the best thing in the world. And not only was I getting sugar from the syrup, but I was also getting sugar from the milk. And what was more eye-opening to me is when I started to become more aware, I shifted and was like, I'm just going to get a regular latte, none of the syrups, et cetera. And I started to go dairy-free, and I started to do the almond or coconut milks. And I remember making myself a latte at home, a coconut milk latte, and thinking like, wow, this is kind of bitter. It, ha it was not sweet at all. And then I went to a local coffee shop, and I had a coconut latte. 
And I was like, did you add sugar to this? And they responded with no. And when I look, I asked them to look at the coconut milk and there was literally 30 grams of sugar in the coconut milk. Yeah. And even just regular dairy is the same. Like if you want to jump on YouTube, there's amazing video. It's old now. Um, but the guy talked about like, this is how much the standard American diet. It was Jamie Oliver, who's a, a famous chef. Okay. So I, I couldn't remember who it was. Um, like had a handful of sugar cubes, like, this is what you get in a day, and then, like, this is what you get in a week and a month, and then he came out, like, a wheelbarrow of sugar cubes, and, like, this is how much your kid is consuming of sugar just, via, a, yeah. just via milk and in a yeah. year. Like, well, that's just milk. Like, think of all the other crap that we eat, whether it's hidden or not. Like, that's a lot of wheelbarrows. Yeah, like, that's what was crazy is he dumped the wheelbarrow and was like, this is how much sugar your kid gets in a year from milk and we were all like what <laughs> mic drop <laughs> yeah exactly so so again when we when we sit back and we say I'm not a sugar person I'm not a pastry person I'm not the sweet tooth person chances are you're still getting exposed to a boatload of sugar if you know it or you don't mm-hmm. so okay so but then also I thought you were going to go in the pancreas of just like not to get off tangent <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite thing to do is to get off tangent um but you have a whole lymphatic system that covers all of your your entire body especially all of your organ systems so it's like infections in the body a lot of times will travel through this lymphatic system so it's like if you have an infection in your stomach it's right next to your pancreas so it's really easy from an infection to go from the stomach to the pancreas and that can alone cause you know and an imbalance. Jeez, Nick, I was going to get there. I'm oh, sorry. You just, like, jumped right in. <laughs> okay, so, yes, you are 100% correct. When it comes to, and just to kind of give you something more relatable, is when you have an infection in your stomach, If again, if you know it or you don't, that's one of the big culprits behind indigestion, heartburn, reflux. So what I often see in practice is that people have those types of symptoms. Some people have it really bad. Some people have it come and go. Some people say, no, I used to have that. But regardless of however long that problem was there, that bacteria that was hanging out in your stomach causing those symptoms, that can eventually make its way into the pancreas because the pancreas and the stomach are connected let alone the lymphatic system being part of that puzzle. Yeah. I mean, I've even found liver flukes, a liver parasite, affecting somebody's pancreas. So yeah. it's like you never know. There, And one of the most common parasites that we see affecting the pancreas, I'll talk about parasites in a second, but one of the most common that we see is something called Jardia. Jardia is a parasite that you can be exposed to from your pets, from cats and dogs especially. So you when can it, get it in water, you can get it. Yeah, and it's very um, easily to be transmitted. So when it comes to this concept of parasites is parasites are thought to be not common. And it's like, oh, well, I didn't go to the go to Mexico, drink the water and get sick. So we kind of assume that we can only get parasites outside of the country. And that's 100 percent not true. You can get parasite exposure from water contamination. And that doesn't even just mean drinking it. That means swimming in it as well. And you can get it from your pets. You can get it from sushi. You can get it from bad meat. Literally, the sky is the limit with the exposure. But interesting enough, for those of you that are like, oh, well, you know, I don't have parasites. So if you notice people acting crazy around a full moon and we go, oh, must be a full moon. Everyone's acting really crazy. Everyone's driving like lunatics. 
That is because parasites are the most active under a full moon. So does everybody in Jersey have parasites? Because they're all (laughs) crazy lunatic drivers. (laughs) I think we are effective drivers. That's what I said. But more serious, a recent study actually just came out. One in four people have parasites. Yeah. So it is not uncommon. And if you are the person that has gone and gotten blood work and your doctor is telling you you're pre-diabetic or even diabetic and you're sitting back going, I don't even eat that much sugar and I never have, you need to get checked to see if your pancreas is dealing with a bacterial or a parasite issue because that is the culprit as to why the pancreas is dysfunctioning in the first place. So when it comes to this blood sugar instability concept outside of the pancreas dealing with an infection, then we have this hypoglycemic, hyperglycemic, and then we also have diabetes. But even when it comes to the hyper and hypoglycemic, this can have a lot to do with the pancreas functioning or dysfunctioning. It can also have a lot to do with our diet. And I don't want to just say what you eat, but also how you eat. Because I know for me, dealing with the hypoglycemia, meaning low blood sugar, I was the person who woke up in the morning, I wasn't hungry, so I didn't eat. And then intermittent fasting became really cool. So then I was like, oh, well, I'm intermittent fasting. So now I have an excuse for why I don't eat in the morning. And but, then, if, but if you intermittent fast every single day, this is like a big problem people do is they yeah. intermittent fast or they think like, oh, intermittent fasting, there's so many benefits of it. I'll do it every single day. Yes. And then that challenge doesn't become a challenge anymore. It becomes you're actually normal. So your body holds on to sugar better mm-hmm. so that you actually don't get into burning fat as well. So that disrupts your blood sugar balance even worse. So what is the best approach for the intermittent fasting? How many times a week? Everybody's different, but I would say like max probably three times, you yeah. know, honestly. Yeah. And I think that's just so important for people to know because – When it comes to the intermittent fasting, it is such a craze and it has massive, massive benefits, but you can start to not have those benefits if you're doing it too much. Right. Yeah. So for me, I was doing it every day, hence some of the issues, but I also was getting to a point in my day that I was starving and that was because my blood sugar dropped dramatically. And then because I was in that starvation mode, I was eating an abundance more than I normally would. And then I was massively spiking my blood sugar. So if I, if you're relating to this, but you're also a person who is eating at lunchtime, then a big bowl of rice, or you're eating a sandwich and you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, you're spiking your blood sugar so massively. And then you're going to come down crashing, AKA you're going to need coffee or need a nap in the middle of the day. And then in addition, you find yourself going home, eating dinner, and what do you want after? You want sugar. You want something sweet. You have to have something sweet. And you're just kind of further spiraling your blood sugar issues. And I know this very well because I that was me. So in addition to that, when it comes to the hyperglycemia, I'm going to let Nick talk a little bit more about that. Because I, <laughs> I would say that Nick was hyperglycemic probably most of his life. For a balance, you know. Growing she was up hyper, in Iowa. I was hyper. <laughs> um, I mean, hyper is pretty simply put. Like, you're just consuming tons of sugar. Um, and that was me growing up. I mean, I would say, ironically, looking at the milk, my family went through about 
especially when I have two older brothers, when we were all at the house, we were averaging about 13 gallons of milk a week. Yeah. That's crazy. That is crazy. That's a a lot more than just one wheelbarrow just of milk. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's disgusting. Um, And it took me a long time to to work on my gastrointestinal issues from everything. Um, But besides that. Oh, in addition, why don't you tell them what you used to do at night with with dad, your uh, your dessert. Oh, yeah. (laughs) After dinner, we'd sit down and take an ice cream. Sometimes in the bowl. Sometimes it was just in the pint and we'd share it with a spoon. Um, but, yeah. you know, eat more dairy. Yeah. So talk about sugar, sugar just from those yeah. two sources, let alone everything else. And then it could, you know, you're drinking your soda, your pop, your Coke, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. And that has tons of not even actual sugar, just, you know, high fructose corn syrup, which mm-hmm. is a whole other story that we could talk about and how it affects us differently. Um, but it's just, yeah, compounding. And then, you know, you think that you're actually not having any sugar because none of it's candy. I mean, yeah. ice cream. I guess is, but sometimes even as a kid, or you don't even think of it as candy because it's not like wrapped up in something or a candy bar or something like that. So then it's like, you know, you have some cookies or you have this, and it's like, end of the day, if you tally all that up, mm-hmm. like, wow, that's a lot of well, awareness. That and you if have. you had a sandwich and you had pasta for dinner or you had a piece of bread with dinner, like right. all of that is still converting into glucose. Yeah. So, but it's the, you know, it's, it's a little bit more so with the hyper, like excess glucose that starts to compromise the insulin. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify what insulin does is insulin's made by your pancreas, but insulin allows your brain and your other organs to use the sugar properly. So if the insulin is not there, then the sugar just floats around in the blood and creates a massive amount of inflammation. Inflammation is like this puffiness, makes your joints achy, makes your body hurt, makes your brain foggy. And if you look at old pictures of me, I was like a little (laughs) puffball. You were. (laughs) Your mom looked at a picture of me and she's like, she didn't even know it was me. She's like, (laughs) oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, thanks, Cheryl. That was was me. Yeah. I think she actually called you fat, but I'm yeah. old. <laughs> we're, in, we're in Jersey. We kind of just say whatever we want here. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> so with that, though, when you go into these long standing periods of the hyperglycemia, then you can actually start to develop the insulin resistance, which, you know, really kind of spirals the, the issue even more. So now maybe you're hyperglycemic for a long time. You start to not have your insulin work very well. And you decide to make a lifestyle change and you're like, oh, well, I really need to cut down the sugar and I need to, you know, go dairy free and I need to do all of those things. But unfortunately, the insulin is already compromised. So now even despite you shifting into a better lifestyle, you might not be feeling the benefits that you hope for. And it's because there's some serious repair that needs to be done to actually get the insulin working again. And that happens almost like on every single aspect of the body. You know, it's like we finally hit this threshold that like, wow, life kind of sucks right now. And I'm in a lot of pain. Something's, you know, forcing me to change and to make all these great changes. But at the same time, it's like, wasn't wasn't that great of a change of feeling awesome. You know, I still don't feel... So, it's well, I think that's where it comes in is being able to have a better guide and have better testing when you actually can understand about, okay, is your pancreas stressed because of all the residual effects from your past lifestyle and your diet? Or is your pancreas stressed because of a bacterial infection? When you have that clarity and you have a strategy, you can 
100% heal and get better quite quickly, but it's really just a matter of knowing, you know, what the the biggest issue is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes to this insulin resistance complex, com, um, com, <laughs> concept is what I'm trying to say. Um, One of the visuals to keep in mind is this is the people that are holding a lot of weight in their midsection. They're holding a lot of weight in the abdomen, especially the lower belly, especially in females. We're holding a lot of weight in the hips and the thigh area. And we're finding that it's extremely, extremely difficult to get rid of this, no matter what our efforts are when it comes to working out or dietary changes. So that is actually an indicator that your insulin is not working properly. Mm-hmm. So um, so outside of that, when it comes to the concept of diabetes. Can I add one more thing? Yeah, sure. Before that. So it's like. Dealing with a lot of brain issues, uh, especially like whether it's a concussion or a stroke or any like actual brain mm-hmm. um, trauma that occurs, that a lot of times doing the history, you'll find that blood sugar is always an underlying problem. And it's like even my own story, the way I don't use somebody else's, but I had about 13 different concussions and kind of going through that and now, like, realizing the past uh, sugar issues that I had and sugar decreases the size of the brain and adds that much more stress, it's like a lot of times you'll find that most doctors, physicians, they're looking at, like, a post-concussion syndrome. Like, you shouldn't you shouldn't have this many effects. You know, it was just a concussion. And mm-hmm. it wasn't even – it was a minor concussion, a chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Like, you weren't even concussed. You didn't black out. Like – like for you to be sad or have these anger issues, it, it's not connected. And it's like you're only looking at one piece of the stress on the brain and it was that stress that took it over the threshold that allowed you to be depressed or allowed you to have these under, under-resolved under just anger issues. And once you're able to really dig deep and put all the pieces and like, yeah, your, your brain was stressed from sugar issues. Your brain was, you know, stressed from gastrointestinal issues. Your brain was stressed from brain trauma. Your brain was stressed from having the emotional issues of, you know, why can't nobody figure me out? Like, yeah. I don't feel good. I'm angry. I'm depressed. I, I'm all over the place. And you're being like, told that you're, told you're that fine. You're fine. It's in it's, your head. It's all emotional. Mm-hmm. And then you go see, you know, a psychiatrist and you talk about your problems, but your problems were literally never emotional in the first place. And now you have an emotional problem that it, it's just, it's a lot of stress onto the system that it's, unless you're able to really you know, navigate through all of the pieces and help which one at a certain specific time and point when necessary, it's like you're not going to fully resolve and get your life back. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, not to like get too deep down this hole, but it's just like it's very personal that if you if you don't evaluate all of those pieces together, like you're not going to get out of your depression. You're, you're going to have this anger that's just not allowing you to be free and you're, you're trapped in a prison. And I just know that personally because that's where I was at and I had to figure it out myself because nobody was able to put those pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. So it's like, you know, blood sugar, we, diabetes, oh, but it's actually like it can cause tons of really severe uh, issues and people aren't looking at all of, all of them together. Well, and I think your story is very relatable to probably a lot of people that are listening is, you know, there's a lot of people that have had some level of a head injury. You know, even for me, I wasn't a a huge athlete, but I had some really significant snowboarding injuries. And, you know, and 
nobody necessarily talks to you about what can happen after when it comes to a post-concussion syndrome. They're a little bit more aware of it now. But when I left that hospital, nobody told me to be careful with my sugar intake. I'll tell you that. (laughs) So, you know, when it comes to the residual effects of brain injuries, and then we have the compounding factors of is your blood sugar unstable? Is it low? Is it too high? Are you pre-diabetic? Uh, And then on top of it, there's, you know, you have gut issues and you have inflammatory issues. It's it's definitely a compounding factor. And And it and it works in the reverse. You know, if you have a brain trauma, then that can affect part of the brain that's also going to not allow the proper signaling to the pancreas. Mm -hmm. So it's being able to evaluate, you know, which is which do you work on both? Do you work on just one first? Like what's what's really going to help someone. That was the last podcast that we did last week was more so talking about how if you are struggling with getting your gut better, it could be a brain problem. And that that vagus nerve, we didn't talk about the pancreas, but that vagus nerve goes to mm -hmm. the pancreas as well. So it's literally extremely important. So I guess like the point of even what we're saying right now is it really should be eye-opening to those of uh, you listening because when it comes to medicine and assuming that all of our systems are separate and that we are going to find a solution, find a cure or find success by looking at the brain separately from the gut and then looking at the endocrine system separate from the pancreas because technically the pancreas is part of the endocrine system. If we're trying to separate the systems and think that they don't communicate with each other, that's where we run into problems. And that's where, you know, our system just allows us to sit back and say, this is a lifetime condition, this is a lifetime disease, and you just have to manage it through medication, and that's your only option. And it's not that that's not the only solution. There when you truly understand how the body works, you understand basic physiology, you do better testing, you can actually piece the puzzle together and give people an actual solution to get better. And you know what frustrates me is that Most of us have just settled for feeling like crap. We've just settled for the brain fog. We've settled for the fatigue. We've settled for the loss of memory. We've settled for the gut issues that come and go. We've just settled for it. And it's partly because of the way we've been programmed and all of these, you know, ridiculous commercials about, you know, oh, just take this medication. And then secondary to that is all of our friends and family feel like crap, too. Everybody's just like, oh, well, isn't everybody tired? Oh, doesn't everybody have indigestion? Doesn't everybody get bloated after they eat pasta? It's normal. Exactly. (laughs) We've normalized it. And one of our biggest missions is to have people ask for more, demand more out of their health care because this doesn't have to be the normal. It just takes a matter of stepping outside of the box and being able to truly understand what your body needs. There's my tangent. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when it comes to diabetes, obviously diabetes is not necessarily much different than what we've been talking about so far, but the diabetes is just a hyperglycemic state that became very, very progressed to the point that there is actual damage to the pancreatic tissue. But when it comes to the autoimmune version of diabetes, which is called type 1 diabetes, this is usually happens very, very early on at a young age, but they've actually had quite a few cases of type 1 manifesting later in life. Why do you you think that is? 
So we're doing a webinar right now um, that has been all about the gut. And the webinar that I just did this week on Tuesday was actually all about the autoimmune gut conditions. And one of the things that I talked about is just the foundation of autoimmunity. And just clinically what I've seen, and honestly, it's what I feel like makes sense, and it always applies to my clinical cases, is that when somebody is dealing with an autoimmune condition, it's just kind of assumed that we have no idea why it happened. We have no idea, um, you know, what is the root cause, and it just happens. And the only science that has been talked about is this concept of molecular mimicry. So what that means is that your immune system sometimes gets confused and just starts to think that your thyroid tissue is a foreign invader and starts to attack it. In my mind, it's like, well, why? Why would that happen? And if we want to talk about that it's all stemmed back to leaky gut, yeah, maybe. But I personally find that when the immune system is doing its job, the immune system is attacking bad things. It's attacking infections. It's attacking toxins. It's, a, it's attacking foreign substances. That's its job. That's always been its job. So if you have an infection in an area, in a specific tissue, maybe it's in your stomach, maybe it's in your pancreas, maybe it's in your thyroid, then it makes sense that if the immune system is doing its job to try to fight the infection, but it's almost like that organ is in a bad neighborhood or it's in the line of fire, then that tissue is going to start to become damaged and inflamed. When it's damaged and inflamed, that's when you see the antibodies that come up in the blood work. Mm-hmm. So if you had a stomach problem that was just deemed as, oh, you have indigestion, you have high stomach acid, but at the end of the day, the right testing was never done, and it was truly a bacterial problem. One of the most popular bacteria in the stomach is H. pylori. So if that H. pylori, and I should say E. coli as well, if those bacteria were in the stomach, they were there long enough that they started to affect the pancreas, I guess because, again, they're connected. So it starts to affect the pancreas. The immune system is just like, get it out, get it out, get it out, trying to do its job. And now we're starting to have damage to the pancreatic tissue. And then we start having damage to the beta cells. Now we don't have insulin anymore because the beta cells make the insulin. And boom, now we have type 1 diabetes. So why do you feel like that happens? I mean, most of the time at such a young age, like type 1 being more genetic. You know, it's hard to say, but... You know, when it comes down to kids that have um, reflux mm-hmm. issues. Like most of those babies would probably have like colicky and. Yeah, colic, issues. reflux uh, babies. Like they have something going on in their gut. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they have going on in their gut unless they're my patient. But for us to assume that like, oh, it's just some babies get reflux or some babies are colic and then others are not. And we just say, oh, it's just normal. No, there's a reason. Your kid is in pain. That's why it's crying. Um, and the same thing goes for your baby is spitting something up because there's something wrong in the stomach. And then a lot of times it, it, they say it's physical. Oh, the sphincter isn't working. And then the kid ends up getting surgery when at the end of the day it was always a bacterial or infectious problem. So you might be thinking, well, how does that happen to an infant? So first of all, if an infant is born in a hospital, there are many opportunities for bacteria. If the child was a C-section and did not go through the vaginal tract, that means that that child was 
was not exposed to all of the protective bacteria that was in mom's vaginal canal. Mm -hmm. And so the baby has no protection, then gets handled by a bunch of hospital administration, which all they have all different types of microbes all over their hands, bodies, gloves, etc. So there, it's a perfect storm for the possibility of bad bacteria. And looking, I mean, I'm always looking at the nervous system because that's just my mm -hmm. expertise. And it's also, as the baby comes out of the womb, like that squeeze activates all of the enteric nervous system. And it's like... So you enteric is the gut nervous system, enteric, by the way. Thank you. So you don't have that stimulation, <laughs> so it's never firing. And if a nerve's just like a muscle, you know, if you can't fire a muscle, it's not necessarily you don't have a strong muscle. It's just that the brain can't actually communicate with that muscle. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing with an organ system. Like, if the brain can't actually communicate with the pancreas, the stomach and say, hey, we're supposed to do this, it's not going to do it, and then you're going to have compounding problems. Definitely. So with that, you know, that's all really important to just understand the manifestation of diabetes and also the potential for type 1. But, you know, the moral of the story is, is if you have hyperglycemia, if you have hypoglycemia, if you have diabetes type 1 or 2, you're going to have massive issues with your blood sugar, which is then going to massively impact your brain. So they're not separate entities. If you are having depression, anxiety, other more significant neurological conditions, um, or you're just having loss of memory and massive brain fog, you have to look at how well this system is working and is your blood sugar playing a significant role in that. So I'll let you kind of talk about your story as well with kind of some of the approaches that you take because we're, you know, kind of flip-flopped. Mm -hmm. I know for me, when I really took charge of my blood sugar being hypo, meaning low, I really had to be make an effort to eat in a certain way because for me, it wasn't about what I was eating. It was more about how I was eating. So what I started doing was I started to lean more towards a ketogenic diet. So I started to cut out a good amount of the carbohydrates so I wasn't having massive spikes when I was eating because if you're hypoglycemic, you might think, well, don't you need more sugar? So eat more carbs. But that's not really how it works. If I keep eating these carbohydrates with low blood sugar and spiking and dropping, that's going to cause more problems. So I started to move towards using a lot of protein, fats, and carbohydrates strictly from vegetable sources. But first and foremost, I started to eat within 20 minutes of waking up, and I did not have coffee, tea, or anything else, or juice I know everybody loves celery juice right now. <laughs> Nothing else before. I just would eat some type of ketogenic breakfast. Like today, we actually had um, cauliflower rice mixed with a bunch of veggies, and we had scrambled eggs on top. And then yesterday, we had – it's actually delicious. It's like a taco frittata, like uh, ground beef taco seasoning with um, a raw cheddar on top in like pretty much as a frittata and then a scoop of um, organic sour cream. So don't get me wrong. I'm dairy free most of the time, but there's select. If I can get really, really good quality dairy, I actually get a lot of our dairy from an Amish farm. Then I'll consume it in small amounts. But waking up, eating right away, making sure that it is protein and fat oriented is super, super important for balancing the blood sugar. And then making sure that my three main meals of the day are going to be heavier in the protein, veggies, and very light in the 
carbohydrates. Um, I personally am not a big snacker. I know that there are many people that are hypoglycemic that are probably more severe than I am, and they need to eat frequently through the day. I personally, my body doesn't need that. But if you are that person, my two kind of go-tos to make sure that you're getting, you know, that fat protein and balancing the blood sugar is these uh, little energy balls. Um, Actually, I'll shout out Nutrition by Sam. Her website is fantastic. She actually is our clinical nutritionist at Integrative Wellness Group. But she makes these um, little balls that are uh, delicious. Of, they're so good. <laughs> but they're a culmination of like nuts and seeds and chia. And like they all, the, she has all different flavors, but you make those in a batch and you kind of keep them in the fridge and they're so easy to consume. And then the other thing is, is I'll just literally have like roasted chicken or hard boiled eggs and I'll use those as a snack if I need to. So those are some key things to, to keep in mind. Um, and if you are gravitating towards like if you want to embark on this concept, but you're more vegetarian, check out Dr. Will Cole's book because his book is about being keto for a vegetarian, um, which is really helpful. So you can still encompass the concepts without eating a lot of animal protein. Yeah. And I mean, looking at my story, I'm a little more probably complex than you. Uh, <laughs> I did not drink 13 gallons of milk a week, so. <laughs> and it's, you know, I had tons of digestive problems from my diet growing up, Midwest diet, and I had tons of brain issues from 13 concussions. Like, that's just a small part of my story. I had a, a, a lot of things to to kind of overhurl. Um, but from, from that, the interesting part of it is that I've actually had many different diets. Like part part of my life I've been paleo, part of my life I've been keto, part of my life I've been vegan vegetarian. Like and understanding that for me, you know, it was kind of my I guess progression to understand that, you know, one thing's great, but you should never identify yourself with being just a vegan or being just a vegetarian because it can be great for you at mm-hmm. a certain point in your life, but that doesn't mean that's where you're going to be six months to a year yeah. or two years from now. Like, Use it for what's going to benefit you at the time, but understand that that's not you. That's a diet. And utilize something that's going to help you, but then move on and utilize what's going to help you become a better version of you next. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I mean, unless you want to be who you are yesterday, do the same thing. But if you want to be something different, then we have to make changes in life. Um, And part of that's, quote unquote, changing your identity, whether that's just because it's really our emotions that drive everything. Uh, So being able to change our emotional connections to who we were yesterday to what we're going to do today to be somebody different. And Um, our food. Yeah. We all have emotional connections to food. Yeah. And that's, I mean, honestly, that's all food is. And when you look at it, like we don't need that many calories um, to survive. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just I mean, everything's energy, but it's like if you look at Chinese, you know, Eastern medicine, like they use breath to circulate energy. Like we sit all day and we sit leaning back like, you know, the Chinese, they don't have backs to the chairs. So they're constantly sitting up to allow their rib cage to open up so they can breathe and circulate energy around. Like they're just a lot more efficient and in, in doing so you don't need as many calories uh, to give you, quote-unquote, the energy you need to move. But I think even when we were in Europe, we just found that people were more in tune with food because of their culture. Like, when we were in France, like, we can look at the French and think they're so gluttonous because all they do is, like, drink wine, eat cheese, and drink espresso. But what I found so fascinating is that, you know, there were little things that they do to actually stabilize the blood sugar. So, like, as an example, they, every time after a meal, they 
they, like, you literally could not leave a restaurant unless you had an espresso. Like, even if you said, no, I don't want espresso, they would not bring you the bill <laughs> until you decided that you want an espresso. And it's primarily because the espresso is bitter, so it helps you digest. And they would always give you, like, a little cookie because they wanted to make sure that you had that satiation when it came to, like, the sweet, so you were not craving the sweet later or and even craving it. Yeah. Exactly. Because, and, I mean, it was tiny. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was just, like, so fascinating to me that they just were so much more in tune with how digestion works. And, and I'm, I'm not certain on the facts, but it's like espresso doesn't really honestly have that much caffeine, especially just a single mm-hmm. shot. It's just like, you know, it's a, a quarter, a third yeah. of whatever. It's a digestive. Yeah. That's what they call so it. It's not like coffee that's crazy high in caffeine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess jumping back to my story is like I, I jumped around on quote unquote a lot of different diets of what my body really needed. And, you know, at certain times there was times where I was, you know, really crazy into fasting and I would intermittent fast and then I would, you know, do the actual fasting of going two, three days of, you know, just doing a water fast. And then there was times where I was keto and giving my brain all these, you know, animal fats and everything that it needed. And so it's, it's really just transitioning to what stage your body needs to be able to heal. And then it's like layers of an onion, like, all right, I've moved through this stage. What's going to benefit me next? So, But you were quite hangry for many years. Oh, so well, what do you feel like has helped your hangriness the most? <laughs> like literally so hangry. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the big part was transitioning off of being dependent on the sugars. I mean, when mm. we crave something, it, it's usually we're craving – a bad thing, but it's when you look at it for what it is, the awareness is telling you, you know, you're craving salt, you're craving sweet, you're craving, you know, sugar, like you're craving something because there's an imbalance in the system. Mm -hmm. And like once you can be aware of that and not necessarily go for what we're craving, but understanding why we're craving it and then, you know, help balance out those deficiencies, that's that's when my hangriness uh, Mm -hmm. really stopped. Well, I think – I I love what you just said because I think it's really important to understand kind of the vicious cycle of this insulin sugar concept because your brain runs on glucose. And if you don't have glucose in the mix, sugar meaning, then it will start to run on ketones, which is the whole premise of the ketogenic diet. But if you are someone who is craving sugar a lot, especially kids, um, especially kids with like autism and ADD and things like that is – you're craving it for a reason because your brain wants more glucose or needs more glucose. But the problem is, is if your insulin doesn't work and your insulin is not allowing for the brain to use the glucose, then you're craving it, you're eating it, and then it's just floating around causing more problems because your insulin is not working properly. So so it's really important to kind of understand that your body is very intuitive and it is going to crave the things that it needs. But if you're that person who is constantly craving the sugar to do a reset, you might need to be ketogenic for a short time to kind of reset how your insulin is working before you can actually use the sugar properly that you are consuming. Right. And before that, you might have to do some liver support. And gallbladder support because mm-hmm. when you do something so heavy in protein and fat, that stresses your gallbladder and liver out. So it's like yeah. you kind of have to look. Well, at lucky, hierarchy. I just wrote an article. Oh, <laughs> you're so awesome. <laughs> 
I actually just wrote an article um, for Mind Body Green, so check it out. It's actually coming out on Friday, and it was about is keto safe. And one of the things that I, I talked about its safety because you have to understand like a condition called ketoacidosis. But like you said, one of the things that I talked about is not understanding you might have to modify this concept of, of a ketogenic diet if you have gallbladder troubles or you don't have a gallbladder mm-hmm. or you have a lot of hormonal issues, et cetera. So just understand that everything is up for interpretation. And when you're talking about diet, it, you do have to cater it to your body and your needs. I feel like that should be our motto now. Everything affects everything. <laughs> so we evaluate everything. <laughs> <laughs> we'll really confuse people. <laughs> So any closing comments in reference to blood sugar, the brain, and everything we talked about today? There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> I would say starting out, just keep it simple. I mean, be aware, cut out you know the sugar um, as much as possible. But in doing so, it's not it's not just biochemical. You know, it's like mm-hmm. it's been proven that exercise works better than every single antidepressant out there. Mm-hmm. So it's like do little bits. You know, it, it's in like I was a personal trainer first um, before doing anything, and you don't increase weight by 10% because your body can't handle that much change, that much stress. Mm-hmm. I, and it really applies to every single concept in life. So it's like only change 10% of your diet. Otherwise, it's going to be too overwhelming. It's not going to be sustainable. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like increase your exercise by 10%. Like if you do 10% in all these different systems, it's not overwhelming and it's actually going to be sustainable and you're going to get amazing results. And Mm -hmm. after a month, increase another 10% change. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, and after a year, like you're going to be a completely different person. So it's not just going like, holy cow, like wild and, Mm -hmm. you know, being a completely different person tomorrow because it's not sustainable. It's not who you are, but little changes over time, it, Mm -hmm. you know, it, you'll, you'll have that compounding effect and it'll be very powerful. Well, and I think the, you know, two biggest things that you can implement right away is one, starting to change what breakfast looks like. And if you don't eat breakfast, start eating it. Even if you feel nauseous in the morning, once you continue, just give your, make sure you eat a little something that will stabilize after a few days. People don't realize that. They usually kind of give up. They're like, I just feel too nauseous in the morning. And that's because you're hypoglycemic. Do you, do you feel with that, like a, like a shake, something liquid would be easier for them or... It might be, but again, you're still probably going to be adding things that are sugar-based. You sure. might be adding a banana. You might be yeah. adding, you know, some type of coconut milk, um, almond milk. So if you are just going to have, you know, a hard-boiled egg, something small, you're making yourself a frittata, you're, you know, even if you're just having like a small piece of chicken or a small piece of fish, uh, it's being able to get yourself that protein or even having an avocado because you're getting that good fat. Mm-hmm. So starting to eat breakfast is really the key and making sure it is protein fat based and it is eliminating carbohydrates out. I think that's one really important thing. Um, when it comes to different supplements that are really fantastic for blood sugar balancing, uh, two of them are called per Lane, P-U-R-S-L-A-N-E, and then the other one is called Gymnema. So those are two amazing herbs that you can um, get access to that can also assist you in balancing your blood sugar as well. Also, water. <laughs> Making sure that people, nobody's drinking enough water today. Yeah. Um, and they'll drink like, you know, maybe six cups of water. I'm like, oh, great. But you drank three cups of coffee. And for each cup of coffee, 
or a diuretic you drink, you need to drink twice as much just to get back to mm -hmm. neutral for hydration. So Yes. You, so what he's saying is if you had a cup of coffee today and you had two cups of water, you're at zero. <laughs> So, and, and that's a big part of, you know, just having the balance between, you know, the blood and the sugar and everything else that goes along with it. Yeah. Water is one of those things that we kind of take for granted and we don't realize how important it is for our health and our organs. Um, so outside of that, for those of you that make these couple of tweaks and you still feel like you hit a plateau, it's time for you to get some testing. It's time for you to understand what is the root cause of the blood sugar instability. And for those of you hypoglycemic that related to my story, don't let that go because I know that that is thought to be such a benign condition. Like, oh, you'll have hypoglycemia. No big deal. I remember growing up and I didn't know, you know, anything when I was in high school, but tons of my friends were hypoglycemic and it was just kind of deemed really normal and this benign, you know, non-problematic issue. And knowing what I know now, it is has huge implications for the brain. So you may have been this person hypoglycemic most of your life and you suffer with depression and nobody's connecting those dots. So get the testing, figure it out and get tools that are customized to you so that you can really, you know, get your brain back and get your life back because I know how debilitating anxiety and depression can be. So it's really just important for you to understand that there are tools out there and you may be working with a physician that just doesn't understand how to connect those dots. All good stuff. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you next week. <laughs>